Hello, welcome to the D&D Roundtable presented by The Tome Show. I'm your host, James Intracasso. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. You just go to thetomeshow.com, you click on the links in the show notes for this episode or any other, and then you shop as you normally would. It's that easy. Before we get into the meat of this episode, I'd like to issue a quick correction. On Roundtable 66, we said that the virtual table Fantasy Grounds wasn't available for Max. Turns out that's no longer true and hasn't been for a while. If you purchase Fantasy Grounds through Steam, there's a version you can use on Mac. Thanks to our listener, Mike, who pointed this out to us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thetomeshow. Today, we're talking about using 5th edition D&D rules to make a D20 modern campaign and an announcement that the Forgotten Realms will be updated. After that, we have a special interview with Wolfgang Bauer and Steve Helt of Cobalt Press about their new Kickstarter for the Pathfinder Advanced Races Compendium. Let's meet our panel and kick things off with our get-to-know-you question. Which Hollywood director would make the best Dungeon Master? Dave Gibson, let's start with you. Well, since there's no living or dead provision on that, I'm going to go with someone who's beyond the veil and Orson Welles. Ooh, good choice. Good Not choice. just because of Citizen Kane, but, you know, oh my God, Citizen Kane. Uh, but also because he's also a bit of an actor, which means he knows how to give a performance, which is important to being a Dungeon Master. And also, he was got to start in radio which means he's got a great vocal performance. He knows how to tell a story um, with audio, which is, again, super important with the Dungeon Master. Let's paint the picture with just words. It'd be really cool to have, like, Unicron behind the screen. <laughs> well, <laughs> he was on my list, too. Yeah, yeah. It's a, that's a well-thought-out great answer. Nice, Dave. Nice. Way to go above and beyond on the get-to-know-you question, for sure. Thank you. Uh, with us, of course, is Wade Kemper. Wade Kemper, which Hollywood director would make the best Dungeon Master? You know, so I asked a whole lot of people in my group, the same question. And I got a whole bunch of answers and I was going to, uh, jokingly say Stanley Kubrick, but of <laughs> course, uh, he'd, he'd make us do everything 75 times before he felt like it was right. And <laughs> he'd never get anything done. Uh, so I'm going to go with a really popular choice. And, uh, I would say Joss Whedon, the man can, can juggle a lot of characters. Uh, he seems to have a really good sense of humor back with like Buffy and obviously with the Avengers, but also like cabin in the woods. Uh, he penned a lot of that. So I, I think a DM with a lot of sense of humor and, and he seems like a, a cool guy to hang out with. Uh, I think my problem with Orson Welles is he's such a megalomaniac. I think it would be so much about him that, that we'd just be puppets in his show and not really the show itself. Mm, well, that may be the case with most uh, Hollywood directors, come to think True. of it. Joss Whedon's <laughs> a great choice and obviously very topical as well. Uh, I like that a lot. I'd love to play, especially if he it was an original homebrew Weedinverse world. Ooh, that'd be great. Chris Dudley is with us tonight. Chris Dudley. Good evening. I had a bunch of different answers, and I really had a hard time deciding, and Joss was on my list as well for the same reason characters. But since I don't want to do a repeat, I'm going to say J.J. Abrams. Even though I'm not a huge fan of his films, I think he whatever he puts on the screen is usually awesome to look at. And I think that he would put an adventure out that was just awesome to be in and awesome to go through. If we if we were going living or dead, I was going to go for John Ford. Also because um, Stagecoach is kind of like a, a really good building of like an adventure and then like this big chase scene at the end. And it's really, you know, just an awesome character building experience. And uh, and there's the payoff with John Wayne at the end. So I think he'd be he'd make an awesome adventure, too. Definitely. Those are both good choices. Of course, we'll see. JJ is put to the ultimate test this Christmas. 
uh, and nerds everywhere will judge him. So we'll see uh, how how good that answer is indeed, Chris Dudley. <laughs> Uh, and of course, Enrique Bertrand, the newbie DM, is with us. I have two answers in mind, but I'm going to go with one. And it's going to seem a little obvious, but it's not. I'm going to go with Peter Jackson, not because he directed Lord of the Rings, but because he can take a three-page sidetrack and expand it into a 12-session campaign. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> give the man two pages, one encounter, and he'll give you a whole campaign from first level to 30th level. <laughs> but I'll stop caring after six level. So no, sure. <laughs> yeah, I think by the first night I'll be asleep. But that's a different story. Good I'll go with Peter Jackson. Uh, my other choice is going to be Spielberg, just because he'll give your character daddy issues. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, let's kick things off with our first topic. We're talking about a behind-the-screens article published on the Wizards website on April thirteenth by Dan Helmick. Uh, in which he describes his D20 modern campaign that he is uh, using the 5th edition D&D rule set for. It's really interesting, you know, we already saw some rules for firearms and guns in the Dungeon Master's Guide, and then he goes on to give rules for armor and which classes would get proficiency in which firearms. Uh, I thought it was really cool to see this. I saw a lot of people tweeting about uh, official Watsi D20 Modern updates. Uh, I don't know how official this is. Uh, my impression was this is just what Dan Helmick is doing for his campaign, and you're welcome to steal it if you want to, but I don't know that Watsi is saying... Yes, this is official modern rules if you want to use them. Uh, but it was still really, really cool to see. I was really excited about it. Uh, I love modern games. I love D20 Modern when it came out and D20 Future and all of its little offshoots and everything. Uh, but I want to know, what did you guys think? Uh, when you saw this, were you pumped about it? Uh, do you like the way that he does armor and he does the proficiencies? Dave Gibson, let's start with you. I actually played in an, an Urban Arcana game for a short period during the D20 heyday, so it was neat to see this come back. Um, I agree that it's possibly not official, because it is just some contractor. Most of it looks really good and fine. The I'm uncertain how I feel about the DR in the, a lot of the other armors, because it's 5th edition goes with a resistance, so you just half the damage. Whereas this brings back kind of a 3rd edition, you take a little bit of damage off the top. And that's so far hasn't been in fifth edition very much. And so it's a very different concept and how well it balances with everything else is uncertain. Yeah, that that is one of the things that really stood out to me is that it's like, oh, you know, we're bringing back uh, numerical damage reduction as opposed to just uh, straight up resistance in some cases. But then he's also mixing it with some resistance, right? Obviously, adding firearms is going to add a lot of complexity to your game anyway. So maybe it was like, well, this extra layer is not going to be too much hassle to, yeah. to deal with. Um, and he does keep it pretty simple. But yeah, I agree. It was. It, I would be something I'd have to play test before I could make a final judgment call on. But it does seem to make things a little more complicated. Uh, Wade Kemper, what did you think about all this? Did you like the rules? Are you a fan of D20 Modern? I picked up the D20 Modern book uh, when it came out, and I liked the idea of each class being an attribute. So you had Strength Guy and Intelligence Guy and Wisdom Guy. I never got to play it. Um, I remember reading the uh, Apocalyptic Supplement book, and I thought that was really cool. But I never did the Urban Arcana stuff because my other RPG growing up was Shadowrun. And I, I feel like that system, despite all of its problems, handles the lethality of a modern world a lot better than uh, a D20 or a 5th edition world, 5th edition um, mechanics could. Because 
you know, D&D is very much about uh, hit point abstraction and you're tough until you go down. And, you know, even with one hit point, you can perform as well as you could full. Shadowrun's, one of the things I loved about it was the more you got hurt, the more ineffective you became because you found that you couldn't aim well anymore and you couldn't, you know, run as fast and all this other stuff. And I, I, I just don't really think anymore, or I used to as a kid, that the, the D20 or the, the Watsy glove could fit equally well on all these different types of play styles. You know, when they, they've run their Gamma World game periodically through the editions to mirror the current edition of D&D. If you go back to older Gamma World, it looks like second edition. Obviously, the fourth edition Gamma World was so nutty, but it still used the fourth edition mechanics. That for my modern type of game, just to get the feel different, I would do it like a Shadowrun. That being said, I think it's great that they're throwing this stuff out. You know, anytime you ask me about an unearthed arcana or a, an offshoot style of game, I say bring more in for the masses, official or unofficial. Uh, I think it's cool mechanically here. I kind of gave it a glance. I think the damage reduction stuff is, I guess it's supposed to show that, you know, in this modern world, guns are very deadly no matter what kind of armor you have. So it wouldn't reduce things by half. At most, maybe you could take five or 10 points off. I, I'm not sure. But that's my official answer. I like that they're doing it. But I'll go with a different system if this is the kind of vibe I want to have at my table. One of the things I remember from D20 Modern was massive damage was dependent on your constitution score. So it was a lot easier to go down from one hit than, you know, in D&D when somebody would really have to, like, get a critical hit and all that kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it could just happen from one gunshot, uh, just like it could in the real world in, in D20 Modern. It'll be interesting to see if they have more stuff come from Dan Helmick, what kind of other rules he has for his campaign to, to see if he matches some of that you know, gunplay realism that exists in Shadowrun and that kind of thing, uh, as opposed to the the D and D world. I think that's a really great point, uh, Chris Dudley. What do you think about this article? Well, I have a theory working right now that Wade and I might have been separated at birth <laughs> <laughs> because he pretty much articulated uh, better than I could have everything that um, I had of my experience with D twenty modern systems. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I was never able to find a game. Um, you know, I bought the core book, but never was able to actually see how it played out. Most of the gamers that I talked to who had played it were some, somewhat negative on it, uh, on, the, on the old D20 moderns, for the reasons that Wade just expounded on. Um, but this right here, uh, um, this I think is a great example of why, uh, of the extensibility of 5th edition. That you can put something like this together, and this is, this is playable rules right here. And this completely changes, you know, how armor works, and it's it's changing how weapons are working with this ballistic damage concept. Um, I was a little unclear as to what dr slash number ballistic meant. Like it reduces, yeah, three ballistic. I think damage. that's the idea. Is that yeah, from from a gun like dr slash three ballistic is it reduces three damage from a ballistic weapon. Traditionally, in third edition, that'd be beyond the slash is what actually is uh gets past the dr like dr slash silver means silver goes right through that that's what werewolves have so based on that it looks like bullets just go right through a kevlar line coat and every other type of damage Mm. so i'm not Mm. sure if that's what i think it's he kind of yeah i don't think that's what he meant and that's why it's confusing to me so uh but yeah i mean this is this is pretty cool i i mean you could you could just download this sheet and have a playable system pretty much you know, Chris, I, I think you hit on a great point, which is 5th edition's design is kind of so elegant that 
with a few quick changes. You know, he's he's not making a bunch of crazy changes here in the armor system. It plugs in very nicely. So I think that's a big compliment to the fifth edition rule set that we're seeing. Absolutely. Enrique, what did you think about this article? Um, you know, I know you run a lot of different types of campaigns. You play uh, Star Wars, you run D&D. What did you think about this uh, modern setting we have here? I like it. I had D20 Modern when, when the book first came out. I, I bought it. I didn't play a lot of it, if any. I, I, I know I've read the book cover to cover several times. I, I, I may have played in a game or two. But it wasn't my go-to thing. Uh, I thought the setting was interesting enough. It was cool. Um, this this write-up here by by Dan Helmick, it's kind of neat. I like it. But one, he, he's already tweaking the 5th edition rules. So it's not really like a f- straight-up conversion, right? He's he's kind of playing with the damage reduction a bit. And two, I wish I had more. It's it's not enough for me. Like, it's it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a nice article and stuff, but I need more. Like, it's, it's too short for me. I want more. You've teased me enough. Give me more. And that's a bigger complaint I have about the D&D website in general right now. But I'm not going to go beyond the scope of, of that. <laughs> I don't feel like it's enough for me to judge his conversion on because it's not that he's giving me one little piece of it. This is like a page out of a book. And I need more. That said, I, I tried converting uh, Star Wars to 5e. It, it's not an easy process to take on these conversions. So if he's not done with it, I can understand why. It's It's... These conversions take time. I just want to give a quick little uh, point out to some of the stuff in the firearms proficiency by class. First, it's great that he does that, but he also name drops the city uh, domain for the cleric and the school of technomancy, which, which is then references, hold up, city domain, school of technomancy. I'll get to those next time. So I think he's definitely seeding that he might return or if not want to return. So, And maybe, you know, this is a great way to uh, to keep people coming back to the website. Um, but I sort of agree with Enrique. There are some holes here where it's like, oh, I could, I could start playing with this now if I just had a little bit more information. You know, we, we don't quite have that, but maybe it's because they are going to sell some D20 supplement or, or, you know, modern supplement or something like that. When you play a modern game, uh, every modern game I've ever played in uh, has not had magic, has not had monsters. It's been like straight up modern world spies mobsters you know um stuff like that uh do you guys like to uh have magic in your campaigns when you play in a modern adventure uh, and let's start with you wade yeah well this is a, a softball question for me because Shadowrun has magic mm-hmm. baked into the system um and they also have metahumans so you've got orcs and trolls and elves and stuff and they have monsters it's not the catalog of monsters that D has but uh at one point a buddy of mine ran us through an adventure. We all we all live in the Baltimore area. He had us running through our national aquarium, and some of the beasts in the Shadowrun world at the aquarium had gotten loose. And there was like a yeti, and we were using magic against the yeti. And you know, so my answer is yes. Uh, I don't think it's necessary, and I think you can play a perfectly fine version of a modern game with either high tech cyberware, magic, different monsters and races, or any of the mix. You know, you've got a lot of options to pull from. One thing I will say about the Shadowrun that I, I am used to is that Magic felt like such a tacked-on separate system that nobody ever played as a wizard, or mage is what they called them. Um, but we let the DM or the GM use them a lot, and we always have Magic infused in our game. But just like D&D, you take what you want. Actually, let me, let me fix that. I guess one of the problems with 
a game like Shadowrun or Star Wars or any licensed property is that it's hard to do that with a, a game world that's established and that comes with the source books. I guess that's one of the reasons why D&D excels so well and maybe, man, I'm changing my tune here. Hold on. Um, <laughs> but, but a modern version of D&D with D&D's vanilla flexibility in setting could really pay off for a, a, a group who wants magic or doesn't or, or wants certain aspects of it. So I like that. I like the separation of mechanics and fluff that a D&D type of game can offer. And I guess Pathfinder could too. That's, that's cool. So I, I changed my mind mid-conversation. So that's cool. You know, I've always wanted to play in a modern setting with magic. So many games out there, so little time. Have not gotten around to it yet. It sounds cool. Uh, what about you, Chris Dudley? Um, I ha- have played in a few modern settings, and I think the ones that had magic are in the majority there. Mm-hmm. Because I've played, you know, Mage, Other World of Darkness things, and that's, you know, magic out the yin-yang. Um, I've played superhero games, and that's not quite magic, but it's not quite unmagic. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and the Dresden Files. In fact, I'm trying hard to think of a game that I played in the modern setting which didn't have magic. I guess a couple Fiasco games. It's really all I can think of. <laughs> well, and Fiasco is great for that. For sure. Yeah, I mean, and some of the Fiasco games I played in did have magic. So, um, so yeah, I've, I certainly have no problem adding magic to a modern campaign. In fact, it seems to be the norm for me. How about you, Enrique? When you have played in modern games, uh, did you play with magic? Did you play a more straight-up gritty style? No, I remember I used to play Top Secret. And if I remember correctly, that did not have any magic. And I played Spycraft. That didn't have any magic. I'm trying to think if I played with magic. I was supposed to play Dresden Files at a Gen Con once, and I never played it. I, I, that, that would have been it for me. I guess that would have been my... And, of course, D20 Modern. Uh, if I did play it once or twice, which I think I did... Then I would have played with magic because that game, the the setting was that was the, the point of the setting that monsters were were part of the real world. To be honest with you, I don't do a lot of playing in in modern settings. Mm-hmm. Not not really my thing. I like sci-fi games. I like fantasy games. I used to like the the spy stuff when I was younger. I'm, I'm I haven't really done a whole lot of that lately. It's kind of cool, but I don't know. I like fantasy a lot, and I like sci-fi a lot. We talk about in my groups sometimes switching over to systems or exploring something like Dresden or, you know, Top Secret has actually come up in a conversation. But we all sit around and agree, you know, we're we're adults, we have kids, we have families, we have other social things. There's just not enough time to do all this stuff like we used to. So D D is comfortable for us. It allows us to continue to pursue the hobby and we all know the rules and we all have in jokes and expectations. And I and I think you know, when we toss around all these other different ways to play or different systems, it's tempting. But I'm I'm with I'm with you, Enrique. You just you, you settle in on what you like and what is going to win over the crowd each time because yep. you may not be able to play for another six weeks, or you, you can, and not everybody can be there. And you know, it's as much as I would love to run in and play something like a Transformers homebrew RPG. We all agree it's just you know we we love the fantasy and it's what keeps calling to us, and if you only have so many times to play. Wait till we're all in retirement homes with <laughs> <Right>. massive RPG <laughs> libraries. And, you know, I'll play up until bedtime at five o'clock uh, if I have to. But, you know, for now, you got to stick with what, what works best for the group. And I, I guess all of us here probably fall into that camp for the most part, even though articles like this are great. And we want to we want to bring out the guns and the magic and the cyberware and the tech. 
you know, it's hard to compete for your gaming time. One of the reasons an article like this is great is because this plugs into a rule set you already know. So rather than learning an entirely new rule set, you just learn a module and you're able to go with it, which is pretty cool. Also, I can tell I'm on a podcast with a bunch of dads right now. One of the beauties of the, the age we live in right now is that we can hop on the internet. We can get on Twitter. We can get on a forum somewhere. And if we wanted to, we could find someone somewhere who wants to play those type of games. And we could play online. We can play on Roll20. We can play on Fantasy Grounds or whatever. Uh, play on Skype. And and not worry about someone not being able to come over to your house to play with you. You could find people online and, and take a night and, and try these games out. I've done so much sampling of, of role-playing games in the past few years just by way of the internet. It, it, trying to tell 20-year-ago me how much gaming I would have I been doing now in my 40s just with people online, I wouldn't believe it. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Uh, like it, it's, the internet has really opened the doors to, to access. Dave Gibson, you mentioned that you play uh, Urban Arcana. Um, have you played without magic? Have you always played with magic? And how have you found it? It's, uh, well, I did play in the, the Urban Arcana, which was a setting, subsetting of the D20 Modern, which actually got its own book, which was cool. Mm-hmm. I'm playing a non-D&D game. Most of the time it's going to be some other form of genre fiction. It's going to be the, the fantasy, the urban fantasy in the modern days, or it's going to be science fiction. So the only time there might not be magic is if there's if it's in the space, if I'm playing like Eclipse Phase or Star Wars, mm-hmm. if you can call the Force not magic. So <laughs> it's because, yeah, I, what else am I going to do in the modern world? That's going to be fun. Gangsters or something. It's mercenaries overseas fighting terrorists. That just sounds kind of depressing and gritty and ugly. <laughs> Fairly con- you know, give me some magic and we'll do Dresden Files or Ghostbusters or John Constantine or something mm-hmm. else. And that's fun throw a little Buffy in there and it's everyone's having a good time and we're escaping from our, our kids and lives and jobs and work. And Let's move on to our second topic, guys. Uh, the realms, the forgotten realms uh, will be updated. So in a series of Twitter conversations that we will link over at the tomeshow.com in the show notes for this episode, Mike Merle's hinted at the realms being updated. Uh, and then Chris Bergen straight up said, the Sundering allowed us to bring back things uh, that the setting had lost over the years. We are, in big capital letters, updating the realms. And we don't have a ton of information on this, although it seems like that's by design because they're probably still working on this. I am not the world's biggest realms fan, uh, although I do know a large realms fan is with us tonight. Uh, Enrique... Uh, what do you make of this idea that they're bringing back the realms? Do you think we're going to see something like a campaign guide? Do you think they're just going to continue to show us like area by area by in new adventures? Um, sort of what is your take on on the way we'll see the realms and what would you like to see uh, coming out of the new realms? The first, did you catch the... I, I know what Chris Perkins tweets you're talking about. I, I saw the conversation. I think I retweeted it. Well, when someone called him out on the on the Sundering, and and Chris Perkins basically said, "Oh, the Sundering is our way to bring back the old realms," I kind of got the feeling based on his tweets that he wasn't entirely happy with the way the Sundering played out, and he said something to the effect of of not getting the message across the right way, or something about what they were trying to do with the Sundering. Because to this day, I'm still not sure exactly what the Sundering is in terms of the universe, the the, the world, what exactly happened there. I do think the realms will be updated only because it's the world they're hanging their hat on right now for 5e. Uh, so it would seem silly to me they wouldn't update it. Uh, how they do that, that's a different story. Um, 
I'm not a fan of the update by adventure thing we're seeing right now, only because they're really not updating anything. They're <laughs> kind of just releasing stories set in the realms, but they're not really telling you much about what's happening in the world. So like case in point, the Tyranny of Dragons, we suddenly learned that Tiamat was in the Nine Hells. Wait, what? How did she get there? What? How did that happen? <laughs> you know, so so there's pieces missing here, you know. So what would I like to see? I'm a big fan of box sets. I, right now I'm playing a second edition era for Gun Realms game using 5e rules. I'm using my old box sets. I'm using my old poster maps, my old modules. Um, so, yes, I'm a big fan of box sets. I wish we got a updated, beautiful 5e box set of the Forgotten Realms. I don't think we're going to get it. I think we're going to get stuck with a hardcover book and that's it. But do I think it's going to get updated? Absolutely do. I, 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 uh, what do I think it's going to look like? I think it's going to look a lot like the old Forgotten Realms because that seems to be the way they're headed. Uh, this is about nostalgia. This is about winning back fans, fans who weren't happy with the changes they made. And that includes the Forgotten Realms. That includes undoing whatever it is they did for the fourth edition version of the realms, which by the way, my campaign has to do with the characters in second edition undoing or making sure the changes that happened in fourth edition never happened to the forgotten realms. So I'm one step ahead of Watsy. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, one great point you brought up is about the sundering and that's that we still kind of don't know what it was or what happened, even though there were six novels published about it and adventures and all kinds of other stuff. This was supposed to be the final giant realms wide earth shattering well, event. And we don't every, know what it was or what well, happened. Look, every time they, every time they do an earth shattering event for the realms, it's to update it for the new edition that they're, that they're running with. So they did the Sundering. Fifth edition came out. Yes, I'm going to assume that there's a new setting coming out. Uh, the Sundering's a funny name because in third edition they shrunk the map to Faroon to make it fit in one poster because before the, the continent was huge and, and they had to shrink it down for third edition. So when they came out with an article in Dragon Magazine talking about the process of shrinking the map of, of Faroon for the new size, uh, the article was called The Sundering of Faroon. <laughs> well, Enrique, you are a big Realms fan. Uh, I'm going to take it to a not-so-big Realms fan, Chris Dudley. Uh, <laughs> I, I know you don't have a lot of love for the Realms. Uh, <clears throat> what would it take for you to get interested in something like a new box set or campaign guide for the Realms? Well, the thing about not being a Realms fan is that even though I wasn't a, a fan of the setting, I still, you know, take the material that comes out in their supplements, you know, as I want it. And I've always been um, a fan of this idea of an organization called the Harpers, and so I stuck them into my homebrew. But as far as um, what I expect out of this one, hope it's a, a, a single hardcover, because that's what, I mean, I'm going to call your attention to this beautiful Forgotten Realms campaign setting from third edition. Mm -hmm. That was that was a, a just a gorgeous book to look at. Loved it. And um, they had a single volume Forgotten Realms campaign guide for fourth edition. So I don't think fifth edition is going to be any different. It's not going to win me over, but I'll probably buy it because it's probably going to have some some things I can steal for my world. Dave Gibson, you know, uh, you know quite a bit about the realms and uh, really D and D lore in general. Uh, you you are the man I turn to when I have a question about anything. What do you think about this? What would you like to see in a Realms update, and how would you like to see it? Well, I'd like to see a, another box set, because to go with my other two bo Realms box sets. I don't know if they're going to do a box set for obvious reasons, and I'm wondering if they're actually even going to do a, a book, just because they've been talking about it, they might try and do things that might surprise people. So I'm wondering if they're going to do something like, you know, like a wiki or an app, and really try to shake things up, something they can just keep updating constantly. 
Hmm. A living document online, perhaps. Yes, exactly. Some sort of, you know, HTML campaign setting where they can just update it slowly over time. And whenever they need to revise it because of the results of the latest adventure, then bam, they can do that really easy. I also imagine it's not going to happen anytime soon just because (laughs) there's four or five people writing at WotC and they only have so much time to do that. And working on a campaign setting and revising a campaign setting is is a lot of work and what i'd really like to see though are surveys on the realms Mm. like they've done with the the rules i like to see them do surveys of who's your favorite god what's your favorite religion what changes did you like what changes did you not like that way they can get a feel for the community as a whole including all the realms fans to see that hey a bunch of people do like dragonborn or that dragonborn nation other people didn't and just kind of get a feel for everything rather than just rolling back all the changes just because it was a change yeah, I mean, I would love to see things go digital. And like you said, even if it was a wiki-style setting, they wouldn't necessarily have to do that much work. They could rely on the fans, kind of, to police everything. We are still waiting for an updated version of the basic rules, so uh, I guess I'm not going to hold my breath for anything digital coming from uh, Wizards of the Coast anytime soon. Uh, well, as as Dave says, there are a lot of there aren't aren't very many people working you know, as, as staff writers at Wizards right now. So I suspect that if they do it, it's going to be farmed out to a lot of freelance people. Mm-hmm. And for something the size of the realms, I do not want to be the editor on that project. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, now, another not huge realms fan, Wade Kemper. Uh, Wade, what would it take for you <laughs> to, uh, to get interested in something uh, like a realms campaign guide or a box set or something like that? Well, the other uh, month, I actually managed to snag the Gray Box uh, Second Edition Realms box set, along with the um, what's what's the name of the one, guys? You know the one with where everybody ruled a kingdom. Birthright. Yes, Birthright. So I got both of those box sets, and I sat down with them on a, on a Sunday afternoon, and I poured through all of them, and I I looked at uh, chapter headings, and I, I dove into some of the intro paragraphs. Obviously, I didn't read all of it, and I compared the two, and I was like, wow. Birthright, I don't agree with a lot of it. I don't think I'd like to play it. But damn, it does some really neat stuff. It forces you to think about the game in a different way, and it, and it, it utilizes its strengths very well. And I was like, okay, time, time to move on to the second edition uh, D&D box set for the Forgotten Realms. And I was like, what's so cool about this? I honestly asked everybody I knew who was into the realms, and I was like, what, what is it that you like about the realms? What is so outstanding you know what is it that brings you back and and i heard a lot of things like well it's familiar and there's all that canon and all that other stuff and i did dive into it once i wasn't grabbed by it and and to be fair you know i i stuck my current game in greyhawk just because my friends had all said oh we never play greyhawk we want to see what it's about greyhawk's pretty boring too it doesn't have anything that sets it apart it's a very generic vanilla fantasy world and that i guess is its own strength um, but you take something else that's similar, which is Dragonlance, and even if you don't like the novels or you think some of the choices are dumb, you know they made three schools of magic that are influenced by the moons, and because the moons are like that way, there's no um, lycanthropes in Kryn. Um, you've got player races that are kind of out there. Um, Minotaurs are are mariners, you know, but it's still high fantasy. It's still a lot of you know interplay traditional D, but it does something different and unless the forgotten realms is something else i don't you, you're not going to get me to get into it because there's so many other great options but if you did get me into it i already have that second edition box set which i've i've heard is one of the better sets out there for the forgotten realms it does a lot of 
things really well. Um, so I don't need to buy anything from Watsi at this point. But as I was reading this article, I read some of the feedback. And some of the folks on there are like, since Watsi isn't creating product, I'm going to let other systems come in and, and take my money. And I think one of the strengths of Fifth is you don't need anything. Um, if you want supplements and you got to have it, go to their back catalog. I'm actually running right now. Any of you guys ever heard of uh, Ravager of Time? It's an old uh, UK adventure from the same folks who did like the Gauntlet uh, and they did some other ones, the Sentinel. And it's like, they're really weird, but they're fantastic. And they're old as dirt, but they they uh, they update so well for fifth edition. I don't care that they're not coming out with new product because their old stuff is all out there. And that's where my wallet's opening toward to, to kind of go back and fill in my collection. You couldn't do it with fourth edition. It was too hard to to fit. But now... And Enrique, at the beginning, you were talking about mongrel men and how you you take old uh, monsters and modify them and, and change them to fifth. You barely have to do any work with that, right? I mean, it's so intuitive. They don't need to come out with anything. There's so much Forgotten Realms stuff out there. Just go to a used bookstore. I know it doesn't help them. Or go to um, dndclassics.com and get it from their PDF files. That's what I think they should be doing. I think that's a good point, Wade, that if, if you want your realms, there are certainly ways to get them. Although, uh, you know, maybe you like 4th edition realms and you're waiting for conversion guides to be able to convert all your stuff, uh, which also still have not come out yet. I will say this uh, for WotC, that a lot of the products that they are taking a long time to put out are pretty quality. The fact that they're not hurrying and rushing things out and taking their time, I think is actually really a good thing in the long run. In the meantime, we'd love to hear from everybody else out there uh, about the D20 Modern stuff and about Forgotten Realms. You can visit us at thetomeshow.com or go to our Facebook page and leave us a comment, facebook.com slash thetomeshow. All right, everybody, let's roll that interview with Wolfgang Bauer and Steve Helt. All right, hey, everybody, I am here with Wolfgang Bauer and Stephen Helt. Guys, how are you today? We are awesome. I'm awesome. I'm doing great. We have seen a lot of great stuff come out of Cobalt Press uh, since this podcast has started. We got to see the Southlands, you know, the Tyranny of Dragons adventure path. Really, really cool stuff is happening over there. And now your latest project is being kickstarted. It's the Advanced Races Compendium for Pathfinder. Uh, what can you tell me about this project in general? Wow, uh, it's big. We've been dreaming about this. I've been dreaming about this for a while. It's basically a chance to to power up or even power down or just put a new spin on, on monstrous PCs, variant PCs, stuff that goes off the edge of the map. Because everybody's played an elf, everybody's played a dwarf or a human. But, you know, tieflings and Asimar and undead races and construct races, they don't get that much love. They really don't. Um, so we said, that's not fair. Let's stretch a little. Role-playing means playing a little outside your comfort zone once in a while. Let's mm -hmm. do a big book that's all about the slightly stranger races, <laughs> right? Let's, let's get some weird little Darrow in there. Let's talk about gnolls and kobolds. Um, so that was the premise, right? We've been doing a series of these PDFs at Cobalt Press for we started three years ago. We started publishing them two years ago. We've done like a dozen, 15 of them now. Um, and we're shining them up and adding a bunch of new races to them. Uh, it's a player resource and it's a game master resource because, frankly, the Darrow, you know, mm -hmm. most of the time they're going to be NPCs. There's, <laughs> there's an anti-paladin archetype for those guys. I, I don't see a lot of anti-paladin archetypes running around as PCs. So. 
Well, and why don't we go over the races here? Like you said, uh, you've got constructs in here. You've got you've got lycanthropes in here, guys. I mean, it's it seems awesome. I love to throw weird and different races at my players and stuff. Um, and I have a lot of players who love to min max and they love story. So, like having a bunch of races available is great for that kind of thing. Uh, so, what do we have? What what kind of races are we seeing if this project gets funded? Well, sure, I can I can rattle on the list. I think it really divides into two categories, right? Is the first thing you got to know. We're funding once we hit our our goal. We're basically talking about fifteen chapters, and each chapter is a race, right? And then if we hit stretch goals, of course, we'll go twenty, thirty races. Who knows how many? <sighs> uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I have big plans and big hopes, <laughs> but. Some of them will probably be shorter than a full chapter. But but they sort of split into two chunks, right? One chunk is like familiar races that you you might already be playing. And the other chunk is like there's some Midgard-specific ones or new races that could be brought anywhere. Um, so let me talk about the familiar stuff first. Like the Asimar are on the list. Centaurs are on the list. Darrow are on the list. Knolls. Lamia are a little less familiar as player character race but they kind of work lizard folk are on the list and that's one of steve's so we'll get back to that (laughs) kobolds are on the list because oh my goodness how could they not be and (laughs) and let me just be totally upfront about my biases here the kobold chapter is bigger than the other chapters okay (laughs) why not (laughs) come on right so that's um, good branding right there yeah it is sort of and it's sort of just like well, if we're going to do this, right, let's do it. Uh, and tieflings are pretty pretty much a familiar category, too. The other ones, uh, some are sort of familiar and some are not. Um, like the undead, the Darakul are the, are the true ghouls, basically, right? They're the, the intelligent social ghouls that go back to the Empire of the Ghouls kind of um, stuff from Midgard. Uh, and they are complete undead badasses who remember their lives as mortals and yet who now have walked through the portals of death and are still somewhat heroic. They obviously can go to the dark side in an instant, but uh, the thing about them is they're, you know, they're from Midgard and the Empire of the Ghouls, and yet they are totally transportable to any place where there's undead, right? Oh, yeah. Um, most of them, yeah, they, they would be darker anti-hero types. The Dragonkin, uh, I, I call them a new race, but they are humanoid, dragon-like figures. There's at least three or four of those that I could name out of fantasy fiction and gaming. <laughs> so it's like, okay, we're doing the Dragonkin. I don't want to claim full credit for them as new. And sort of the same story with the Gearforged. They're an automaton, construct race, human souls in a mechanical body, they're awesome. They're, they come from the Zobek campaign. They're tied to some of that history, but they're totally portable, right? So, yeah, I don't know if I want to claim full credit for them as brand new. And the Raven Folk are kind of a spin on the Tengu. They're a European or Norse take on the Tengu. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're Odin's children, right? So mm-hmm. Odin has Hugin and Munin, the two ravens, thought and memory. They sit on Odin's shoulders and they know everything. Well, the raven folk are sort of a whole race of raven-like people who answer to, you know, could be Odin, could be some other figure in your campaign. And they're, they're oracles, and they're stealthy, and they're kind of thieving 
guys half the time, and they're sort of mystic badasses the other half. I, I mean, it's one of my favorite new races, and people keep saying, yeah, they're just Tengu. And I'm like, no, pretty much all the flavor is different. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the mechanics and the crunch don't really line up with Tengu exactly. They're, they're a European-flavored medieval fantasy thing. And then there's just a couple more. There's the Shadow Fey, which are a new race of Fey, somewhere in between, say, the Drow and the High Elves. They're, uh, they're not always evil. They're, they're just snooty, right? <laughs> uh, the write-up on the Shadow Fey is fantastic. Uh, Carlos Oval did a great job with that. The Tusculi, the Wasp Folk, are from the Southlands Project, which we've talked about on the show before. Of course. They're an insect race that has a hive mind, and the player character versions of those are the ones who don't hear the song of the swarm, right? They don't hear the golden song of their queen. They don't fit in to the hive. Um, so they are all outcasts and exiles, and the Tusculi wasp folk who are player characters are called the Hiveless, and they are, you know, sorry, buddy, get the hell out, right? That's, <laughs> that's their origin story pretty much universally. Uh, and the final race is also uh, comes from the Southlands work. Uh, it's the Weir Lions, uh, who are fantastic hunters, rangers, warriors, and just what it sounds like, right? For some reason, we've had weird tigers forever, but we haven't had weird lions in D&D and Pathfinder. So, uh, yeah, we ought to fix that. Now, they're a breed that uh, they breed true, right? Mm-hmm. In in our take on them, they, they're not necessarily the curse of lycanthropy thing. There's a whole nation of weird lions uh, in the Southlands that, that we'll be shipping in a bit. Um, but, yeah, they'd fit anywhere where you have big savannas and... You know, do you want to be a weird rat? <laughs> no, you don't. Not really. <laughs> Wouldn't you rather be a weird lion? So uh, that actually, people have really taken to it, and uh, we've gotten a bunch of feedback that makes me think we're going to update it and correct it and expand it a little um, in the Advanced Races Compendium. But the core premise of it, people have really taken to. Nice, nice. So that's that's the idea that you're going to see these things. Obviously, you'll get the story and the you know, base statistics for these, but what else are we going to see? You know, are we going to see feats and spells and gear and all the good stuff people want to see? Well, yeah, right? (laughs) Well, so The Lizard Folk is uh, the first book that uh, me and my writing group, The Four Horsemen, did uh, on these. And then I've done some development work on some of the others, and then we've also worked uh, some of the stretch goals and other books that are going to be added uh, to to the compendium. And one of our goals was we want to make sure that whenever a Pathfinder player or GM opens up one of these books or opens up an advanced race, they're going to ex- they, they know what to expect. So we want to streamline all of the appearances and make them kind of all the same. So they're all going to have some fluff and some history and some traditions, things that we point out about their culture. They'll have at least a, a sideboard, maybe some more information that puts them specifically in Midgard for Midgard fans, even though the actual book is setting neutral. And then... Uh, yeah, we're we're sticklers for making sure there's lots of mechanical information. So uh, we love to develop archetypes. Uh, it, the books overall have archetypes, prestige classes, spells, feats. Uh, they have new bloodlines or new oracle mysteries. I love making new oracle mysteries. That's one of my favorite things in Pathfinder design. Yeah, um, and so new racial gear too, new equipment. Yeah, there's uh, new equipment, and we also include magic items. And for a few of them, whenever we get a really compelling one, we've got some minor artifacts. Uh, and, and then other kind of more unusual options. They also all have favored class and variant traits, so you can kind of have, uh, that's one of the things we're really happy with lizard folks. You know, you could have lots of kind of lizard folks. You could have the, you know, the water runner lizard, uh, 
or you could have crocodiles and the differences in those are huge. There's like the big meat eating one, predatory one. Uh, and then there's the little nimble one that can actually run across the water. So we created traits for all those. So you could play a different kind of lizard folk based on whether or not you're uh, in the desert or you're in the swamp or you're on the river basin. Uh, and so those variant traits really help bring these races additionally to life so that they can fit any campaign uh, or they could be useful you know, for both the GM and the player, they can be the kind of lizard full, or, uh, you know, maybe the kind of Minotaur that you want. So it sounds like this is packed with your optional mechanics and everything, but it also sounds like every mechanic kind of comes with story. So even if you're not playing in Pathfinder, uh, there's a lot of great things that you could pull into your game because some of these races, you know, can be found in other games, D&D, that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. even if you're playing D&D, this sounds like it'd be a great book to have because you could uh, pull in information and, you know, adapt stuff on your own if you're oh. a DM and want to. It's awesome. Yeah, I really think so. Each one of the books that I've worked on development so far has, it's about between one third and one half, uh, the history, the culture, uh, the personality, the style, or the uh, uh, the appearance of the races. Mm-hmm. And... That's very important, I think, because you want to be portable to any kind of game or any kind of game system. And so that's what allows that to happen. The The one book that doesn't have as much in terms of, of uh, background information is just the Lizardfold book because it was part of the Southland release. And so there's a lot of information about Lizardfold, you know, and their, their kingdoms or societies and that sort of thing in Southlands. I have gone out on a limb and promised people that the Lizard Folk chapter in Advanced Races Compendium is actually going to get an additional swath of material taken either from the Southlands or more general material that takes uh, lizard folk legends, sagas, myths, culture, maybe some sample tribe ideas, and and rolls them into that chapter too. Because people did say, you know, the flavor is one of the reasons why we love this series and why we love the the Cobalt Press take on these races. And I, I... you know, some people say I'm all about the crunch. Um, <laughs> try to we try to maintain a balance, right? Where it's it's plenty of mechanical meat, but but also like stuff that will inspire you regardless. Um, of, of yeah, in terms of word count, most of the books we worked on so far are about fifty fifty between the uh, the what they would call the fluff and the crunch. You know, the background information, the interesting stuff, and then the player friendly stuff, where the you know it affects the statistics or your character build, that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, that's great. And, you know, uh, Wolfgang, I think of you as, as a master of all things gaming. So, you know, you're... you're I don't coach. know if I go that far. <laughs> I, I would. I will definitely uh, join you. In yeah, yeah, you're a crunchy you. fluffer nutter. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's delicious. You got some beautiful artwork already picked out here uh, oh that goodness. you can see if you yeah. go check out the Kickstarter. Um, who's doing this? This is awesome. Uh, so the cover art is by Guido Kweep. Uh, and that name has to be Dutch. I've never asked him, but it just sounds so Dutch to me. Um, and he's been, he's been all over the art scene lately. He's done a lot of covers for Cobalt Press. He's done a ton of work for Numenera. He's just super talented. Um, and so his art is the cover and there's like, uh, 10 races, 11 races shown. It's like a wraparound cover. So the front and the back cover of the book will have full art and it's, awesome um and then yeah the the previews of the interior art we've shown are by josh haas uh who's really an up-and-coming talent doing fantastic work we show off uh the raven folk on the kickstarter page 
And in some of the updates, you can see one of the Darakul spellcasters. They have necromancers who kick a lot of ass. Um, and then just today, actually, we revealed uh, the Minotaur art by Josh Haas. And uh, the reaction to that has been really gratifyingly great because, you know, that's that's our first stretch goal. And we really want to hit it. And people see the art and know, hey, we... Uh, we're going to show each of these races to its best advantage. And we're, we're, yeah, Minotaur book is a lot of fun. Yes. We have some text for it already. I mean, one of the things about this project is a lot of it's already written. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of it's already laid out. We, we love this book so much that it just like, well, we're going to start working on it before we kickstart it. And maybe that's overly optimistic or foolish, right? But it's like, no, <laughs> we think this stuff is awesome. We think people are going to see it. And, um, and want to play with it so well and let me tell you guys i saw the uh minotaur making the rounds on twitter today this is a minotaur unlike uh, a minotaur i have ever seen it's really cool he's in this spell casting pose you know his eyes are all crazy lit up it looks like he's tatted up on his arms and stuff you know this guy is is a badass but is a badass in a way that he's not a, a foaming at the mouth minotaur with a great axe yeah there's a lot in the minotaur chapter that i guess i don't want to spoil yet but we <laughs> tried really hard to get away from just well they're all fighters right mm-hmm. uh it's like well we support that there's some great options there for combat but let's talk a little about like labyrinth magic right that was something that jason bullman wrote for for deep magic um a whole domain on like mazes and labyrinths and said well minotaurs can be divine casters let's give them this domain and this set of magic and to town with it well every project builds on projects before it so um we're trying to roll all those things into into each race here to give them the maximum buffet of options let's talk a little bit about your stretch goals obviously the minotaur chapter is one of them uh your hero lab add-on which is great uh you know i think everybody would love to see this project make it at least that far um, yeah, well, the only people who who are a little trepidatious about the Hero Lab add-on are the people who are actually coding the Hero Lab data files because the volume of crunch here <laughs> right. is huge, right? I mean, it's they've kind of told us, you know, we might can't promise that we could ship the Hero Lab like the same day that the book goes out. Like, that's okay. It can be a week or two later. <laughs> but I, I mean, really, that there's a huge the work that goes into Hero Lab support is is big, but it's crucial, and we love to support that system. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great tool. Today's the first day that we did stretch goal revelation, and it's just the Minotaur and Hero Labs. That's right. That's right. I think we're going to have. Well, maybe by the time this podcast ships out, we may have revealed a few more. Um, oh, neat. we we. I mean, yeah. <laughs> some of them are very crunchy. Some of them are art goals because we we love the art so much. We want to you know do as much of that as possible. And some of them are surprises, right? I I believe the Kickstarter shouldn't all be the same. Sort of like, oh, I know exactly what I'm getting. <laughs> some of the some of the stretch goals should be, oh, oh, that's very cool. I didn't expect that. <laughs> well, and if anybody who's listening has ever participated in a Cobalt Press Kickstarter, they know that <laughs> the, the stretch goals are awesome, and they're, they are wonderful surprises. It's not like, oh, it's that, it's, whoa, I never thought of that, and my mind is now blown, and I get yeah. to have this thing. 
which is cool. My inbox has been filling up with PDFs for the last, I guess, three, four months uh, with Southland mm-hmm. stuff, which is yeah. awesome. Since uh, the end of December, we sent the first ones, and I believe we're up to eight or nine PDF stretch goals have been delivered for Southlands, and I think there's like one or two more stretch goalie ones coming. So, yeah, I mean, we love to load people up with the goods. <laughs> yeah, well, and, you know, these guys, are all, they're already writing stuff. They're already writing things. So, um, you know, it's, it's great that, uh, that we know that you have the passion and the excitement for this, that you're working on it ahead of time. Oh, so. oh we better. I promise people this thing ships by Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we can make it. I keep looking at the calendar and I keep looking at the schedule and I'm like, yeah, we're, we can do that. We're, it, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not a pipe dream. It's like, we've been working on this steadily and we feel confident that the chapters are going to just keep going, going, going. Um, and we will deliver people a book by the end of the year. One wider thing I've seen the world say recently about Pathfinder is like, oh, there's so many options already. We don't need more options. You know, we don't need more whatever. I am not of that opinion. I think the more stuff you can have, the better for a role-playing game. Basically. Oh. The more options. Uh, what is it that you that is really exciting to you about the Advanced Races Compendium that makes this like a valuable addition to the Pathfinder rule set? And there's some legitimacy to this complaint, right? There are a lot of options in Pathfinder. The thing is, though, for monstrous PCs, you don't have a deep bench of material to draw on, right? It's like, well, yeah, there's some, Mm -hmm. but not a lot. Um, And when it comes to sort of flavor and culture stuff, then again, there's some, but not a lot. Um, and you go look at the gnolls, or you say lizard folk, and it's like, uh, we could go much deeper. And so part of what you're getting here, of course, is um, is just more. So that's fine. And for some people, more is not reason enough. The other thing you're getting, of course, that we haven't talked about yet, is these races, a bunch of them, are built to scale for different power levels, right? Like the Gear Forged. They're a construct race. They're perfect for this. But we do it with some of the other chapters, too. Um, which is to say, if you want to play a sort of low-level, gritty, urban campaign, um, or just a lower power-level campaign, there is a version of the Gear Forge that works for that. And it's sort of like, how many points in the point-build system do you want to put into this, right? And there's also a high-powered version of the Gear Forge where they have a lot more immunities. They have, a, they have enough to give you know, some GMs a little bit of heartburn of, oh my goodness, these guys, <laughs> you know, how am I going to smush them? I guess I better get the rust monsters going. Um, you know, it's, it's that sort of scale, sliding scale of, is your campaign mythic and high-powered and super epic? Or is your campaign more like, well, a troop of ex-bandits kind of makes it to the big city, right? And it's, it's a lot less um, Gandalf and the Balrog moments and a lot more hey, guys, we can afford our first suit of armor. Uh, <laughs> different play styles. So I think that makes kind of a big difference to, to people because we're, we're making it suit your campaign. Um, the last thing, of course, is for some people who are Midgard fans, yeah, there's going to be additional lore there. There's additional story elements there. And in some cases, we're sort of taking material that was pretty strong to start with and then expanding, polishing, and refining it. The other part of this project that Steve is maybe too modest to say is, well, you know, he's on the team with like Thilo Graf as a developer and Alistair Rigg, um, 
they're all really sharp developers, and they're they're tuning these races to be um, the best they can possibly be. So we're putting a real coat of polish on this book. Yeah, I think not only everything Wolfgang said is true, but this book is actually sort of a response to the complaint that there's a lot of stuff out there. Because what is that stuff for? You can play humans and dwarves. Uh, you can play halflings. Uh, but, I mean, can you play an archetype that's suited specifically to play a knoll in a desert campaign? There, there's not anything out there that does that. But now the Advanced Races Knoll chapter will. I mean, you can be, uh, I'll just spoil a little bit, you can be a knoll sycophant, a guy who rules from behind the throne. He gives his allies bonuses, but he can also betray them at a moment's notice uh, if it suits his power level. Uh, you can be a lizard pole cavalier who rides dinosaurs and, and doesn't isn't just a cavalier on a dinosaur, but his class is attuned to the idea that, that he and his mount are one. He fights inside his mount space. He can flank even without having to be on the other side of it. I mean, there, there are really cool abilities, and those archetypes and spells and other stuff, they bring a lot of color to races that, I mean, frankly, most books are made for basic PC classes. And that's yeah. okay. There's, there's nothing wrong, or I'm sorry, PC races. There's nothing wrong with humans. Humans still, as much work as I've done on all this stuff, and I've, I've, I've seen uh, or edited or created a lot of really cool options for some of these race books, but humans are still my favorite. I, I, I can't get past the bonus feed, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> there's something to be said for that. Yeah, oh, yeah. But, but at the same time, if you believe that Pathfinder is getting too big too quickly, which I do not personally agree with at all, I believe more is better, especially if the work that you're getting is quality. Uh, but you know, if you believe that, then consider that a lot of that stuff is geared towards the same old races that people play all the time. And here you have a chance to play something that is truly unique and truly different. And we'll give you the background to fit inside Midgard or another game world. And then we'll give you some of the cultural aspects that will help you choose the story, the background story for your character. And then we're going to give you mechanics that don't exist anywhere else for, for all of these races. And, and I just think that it's a, it is definitely a book for everyone to have. And we can't say it enough. I know Wolfgang has said it, and I've said it on Facebook a lot lately. Uh, this book is equally brilliant for for players and for GMs. So if you want to develop your world and your game and get full immersion, uh, you know, maybe your players just want to play humans and dwarves and halflings. That's fine. You're bad guys in the lizard folk setting, the lizard men tribes who uh, are specifically protected to get rid of the mammals because the mammals keep encroaching on their land. Your lizard men bad guys or antagonists are are going to be very special and very unique with lots and lots of details. So this book uh, handles that, I think, masterfully. Absolutely. And you, then you have the building blocks to make an awesome lizard folk anti-paladin, which is great, too. <laughs> um, you know, Steve, that's a great point. I have some players at my table, not all of them, but some who are min-maxers, who sometimes want to play a race uh, for story reasons, but because they, they can't bring themselves to do it because the other races have more options. And they sure. want to. They don't want to like have less options. So a book like this is really great for people who you know want a lot of options and be able to really build awesome, powerful PCs. But then it's also great for inspiration for thinking about like, oh, you know, what would it be like to be you know a Tusculi and to be Hiveless? Like, how does how does that take shape in my character's story? What does that do? Uh, you know, so with that in mind, kind of, I want to ask each of you guys, what is your favorite race story-wise, and what's your favorite race uh, for crunch, for mechanics and abilities? Oh. Do you just mean inside the Advanced Races Compendium? Yeah, yeah, inside the Advanced Races Compendium. We we know you're a human guy all the way, Steve. Oh, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> totally true. Uh, 
uh, gosh, I'll buy Wolfgang a minute to uh, to think it over because I know that he's oh. got lots of races. Plus, we need to give him something to say besides Cobalt, Cobalt, Cobalt. <laughs> um, okay, I promise I won't pick Cobalt. The, uh, uh, my favorite race thematically so far has been – I'm not sure that we've written them yet, actually. Hang on. No, I'm sorry. My favorite race thematically is a stretch goal. We're not going to announce that. Oh! My favorite race thematically among, among the ones that I've already done – uh, I think uh, I'm a big fan of the Derekul. Uh, the Derekul are, first, I have a, an abiding love for clever undead. I sort of feel like 3.5 and Pathfinder are both really mean-spirited versus undead. And I like to be, be able to play, you know, I want to play a really clever undead character that isn't just reduces their hit points at the drop of a hat, and then the game is over. So, but I also want to play somebody who, maybe they're evil, maybe they struggle with the curse of being undead, uh, or maybe you're just in an evil party and it's very darkly complected and your job is to bring the system down. Uh, those are really good stories to tell. And then when you have thematically the idea of a very clever character, and we, we sometimes do, uh, I don't know how I want to describe it. I just think that they're cooler and uh, they can tell a really cool kind of darkly complected story. That excites me. I think sometimes in role-playing, we kind of pigeonhole the undead uh, as not a very good story. You're evil, you consume flesh, or you drink blood, or you are incorporeal, and that becomes, you know, we use that instead of creating a more complex story. Mm-hmm. And I think that the Derek Hole book helps create a really cool uh, tapestry, uh, and I think also that having multiple powerful levels is one of those books where you can play the, the basic, you know, kind of zero-hit die, just a few, you're kind of a smaller Derek Hole, or you can play a really powerful one. Uh, and uh, I think that that is very cool thematically. Mechanically, it's got to be the lizard folk, I think, because uh, we put a lot of love into it. We had three really good designers work on it, and uh, I'm super proud of the the cavalier class, but also a lot of the feats and spells. I think are really exciting. Yeah, it's really tough, um, <laughs> especially since I'm not allowed to pick Kobold, and and Steve just picked Derekul, which you know. <laughs> oh, I did kind of your thunder there, didn't I? <laughs> no, but that's totally fine. Um, the the race that I've been thinking about sort of thematically and story-wise for a while as like, maybe this is a future PC for me, or at least another NPC, um, is probably something from the Shadow Fae. Because story-wise, they're a little more interesting and a little more complicated than, you know, uh, straight-up high elf type stuff or straight-up drow, mm-hmm. where the Shadow Fae are, you know, they've kind of sold their souls out to the Plane of Shadows, and they're, they're tricksters, they're bastards, they're <laughs> excellent duelists, they're good at everything, they have this enormously condescending, arrogant attitude. And I don't know, maybe that's me, maybe I, I don't realize what a narcissist I really am, but I actually think most of the time I, I, I'm pretty quiet and I sometimes have a hard time talking myself up, so it would be an awesome role-playing challenge to say, you know, I'm just going to be the loudmouth who thinks he's like king of the hill every single day, right? I'm like, you little people can come along with me. That'll be nice. That'll be nice for you. <laughs> and and how much smarmy bastard can I bring to the table? I don't know. Would the rest of the party eventually kick me out? Maybe. But it would be fun to play. Mm-hmm. Um, mechanically, there's a lot there, too, as well. I love shadow magic. Anyone who read Deep Magic knows that there's that whole school yeah. of illumination. So it's like, okay, I'm a total sucker for all of that. But like, 
a shadow face sorcerer? Yes, please. I'm I'm on board, right? Um, mechanically, oh, it's really hard to pick, but I think at the moment I'm really hot on the gear forged, partly because there's this whole thing about swapping parts and you know a construct race that really builds with like, okay, you want parts? Here's a wrench. Go to it, right? <laughs> um, and it takes that sense of the mechanical and turns it into um, a, a system that says, okay, well, you can scale up with these feats and you can use this special equipment and here's how your character's body and physique and physical prowess changes, right? Um, most of the time we like to hand wave, hey, the human fighter's just faster and tougher and it's got more grit. Boy, he's got heart. Well, the Gearforged fighter has just improved his breastplate to mithril, right? And he's put, uh, I don't know, spring-loaded knives in his hand. And <laughs> so you get to do all that cool Terminator stuff, and the rules for it are there. And and it's just a wonderful cross of, of automaton um, and mech warrior <laughs> and, and that kind of vibe that I think um, I just haven't seen in a construct race before. Well, and there's I also a, there's a huge market for the kind of the intelligent half construct that you know has been in a couple of editions of D and D and is in a few other role playing games. I think the Gearforge pulled that off better than any edition so far. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've been working it over and over and over. <laughs> yeah. Part of it's just like, man, I go back to the first version of the Gearforge. It was written for three point five, and uh, we've been updating it ever since. So. <laughs> This, like you said, this race exists in a lot of different settings and a lot of different rule systems and everything now. So you could pull a lot of really cool ideas from this and bring them into your campaign, even if you're playing in another system, which is awesome. Why don't we talk a little bit about the uh, the pledge levels and everything here, guys? Uh, you have, as always, numerous, numerous pledge levels, so people can really get exactly what they want out of this uh, Kickstarter project. Uh, why don't you take me through it a little bit? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, for your basic 25 bucks, you get a 300-page, full-color, fully vetted, heavily developed, awesome PDF, right? Um, it's, it's just a huge chunk of material. Um, so the PDF level is, like, hugely popular. Everyone loves it. For 50 bucks, you get the book. Um, because some people prefer print, <laughs> mm -hmm. and we're happy to ship it to you. You know, beyond that, we're trying to keep the pledge levels a little bit mm -hmm. simpler than some have been in the past. Uh, there is a, a leatherette version, like a foil-stamped, uh, how to describe it? I mean, you've seen the special editions of, I don't know, they did these for 3.5 back in the yes, day. Yes, they right? did, yes. Um, it's a limited edition. It's about 150 copies. We're doing special end papers, bookmarks, and it's just, it's a tricked out version, um, of, of the book. Um, so that's there for those who want it. Uh, if you're really feeling arty, we also have, uh, something called the patron of the arts pledge level for 250 bucks. You get the fancy leatherette edition, you get the PDF, you get the poster, you get a print of the cover art. Get your choice of prints from the interior. Like you pick your favorite race. Say it's the Derakul and the Josh Haas art, or the Minotaur, which is also awesome. And we do uh, we work with um, basically an art print shop that prints on archival, you know, acid-free paper and super high resolution color, and and 
we have done these before. These prints are really great. Um, so if you love the art, um, that's an option. We also will let you just pick a race and make us dance, right? <laughs> um, if you want to sponsor an appendix uh, for about 375 bucks, you're in, right? It's like, we, you pick the race and we will be your monkeys. Um, so if you love the Gripply <laughs> or you love, I don't know, Roachlings or I pick your favorite somewhat more obscure race, right? Uh, we're on it. If, it. if it seems plausible, right? We're, we're not... We're not, not doing, doing ancient gold worms or anything like that. No, we're not doing your Odiug NPC. We're not. <laughs> we're not doing the purple worm player character, right? That's just. <laughs> but within reason, um, you know, pick a race. We'll do it. Um, and then somebody it, should back us at that level so that we can do hobgoblins. I would be really excited for that. <laughs> yeah, you know, and uh, I think we've got like one backer at that level. We're only doing like ten of those, right? Because at yeah. some point we got to say uh, we got to get this book to press this year. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it's kind of a cool way to pick a race that you think has been neglected and really get some highly focused uh, design attention on it. Uh, and we also do fancy things at the super high roller level. Uh, an actual leather edition with gold foil stamp and it's like hand bound by an artisan here in Seattle who does this amazing work. Um, and it comes with, you know, extra prints. Uh, it comes with a poster. It comes with this, that, and the other thing. But the main thing is, Oh my God, the leather bound editions are beautiful. We knocked ourselves out on the deep magic one. And I should probably post pictures of the deep magic version of the hand bound book. Cause it's just, mm. Um, and then we have one pledge level, which is all of that stuff, plus the Cobalt crew runs a game for you at a convention, or online, or wherever you find convenient. How cool is that? Yeah, so we haven't done a, hey, we're running the game for you uh, pledge in a while, and it's honestly a lot of fun, <laughs> but, you know, it's it's a perk for, for people who splash out big, so happy to do but that. But you know what's really cool about that I think is uh, that's not actually, it sounds like an expensive pledge, but it's not really because you divide that cost. If it's you and five friends who get a game run by Wolfgang Bauer uh -huh. and isn't that worth 150 or 200 bucks for that experience? Uh, I think so. Or say Iron GM Stephen Howe, maybe? Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, the Four Horsemen have three years of Iron GM World Champions, so we're, we're happy to run a game. <laughs> yeah, I mean, frankly, yeah. I, depends on how many people pledge for those but yeah it, at like 150 200 bucks a throw uh you and some of your friends would would will blow your minds we will knock ourselves out to make it the best game we can possibly make it that is awesome plus at that level you also get to choose a race to add to the appendix which is you also get that and yeah. you get the super amazing leather bound hand bound edition so yeah pretty much all our top goodies go right in there like I said, you guys deliver every time quality products uh, that are great to use at the table and are, are great to use in the game. So I'm excited about this. Who else is working on this with you guys? It seems like there's a, a good chunk of names uh, in oh addition goodness. to the two of you. Well, yeah, the four horsemen, including Steve, uh, myself, uh, Mark Radel is our art director and has written, um, in fact, two chapters, I believe. Um, we also have, uh, man, I don't think we've announced the stretch goal. We have two uh, Paizo staffers who have written chapters. Um, 
and uh, Amanda Hammond Coons has been a longtime COBOL contributor. She's a developer at Paizo now. Uh, Stephen Radney McFarland also has a unannounced stretch goal. Um, <laughs> so you know we're working with the best uh, best in the business, and some people who, frankly, have just shown amazingly great chops. I talked about Carlos Oval doing the Shadow Fay. He and and his wife Holly just you know. Did uh, did stellar work on that, and also on Deep Magic. Um, we even have a little section from Zeb Cook uh, about the Tieflings. Wow. Tiefling chapter, yeah. Uh, and Jeff Lee, who, who people may know from the Demon Cult series uh, for Southlands, um, he's got a chunk in here. And Ben McFarland has a bit, and Brian Suskind, the the duo from Southlands. Oh wow. Wow, that is a lot of big names in the industry, people. Uh, yeah. So, and and Stephen, who are the four horsemen for those out there who don't know? <laughs> there are three of four horsemen right now. We're we're kind of in the search for a third one. The four horsemen thing started as a joke, and now it's now it's a branding. Uh, I guess I've got to go find a fourth. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I take on the persona of, of Famine, and then uh, two great friends who have been longtime gamers, GMs, and and done some design work. Uh, with different companies, uh, Dan Dillon and Stephen Rowe. Uh, those are pestilence and death. And uh, it is so much fun working with them. I have worked, I've been blessed since winning Superstar to work with lots of, uh, of designers, some really good names, and I still would not trade those two guys for, for anybody. Uh, we work really well, and we work really fast. And so it has been a, a big blessing to be able to work for Wolfgang and be able to try our hand at designing races and all that stuff. Uh, one thing that uh, Wolfgang maybe was too uh, humble to mention we also have a stretch goal uh, that may have another, if we get to the stretch goal, we'll have another RPG superstar winner. Uh, yes. Who do a book. And oh, uh, that person uh, is a recent superstar winner who is fantastic. Uh, turns in quality work every time I've developed work of hers before. What else are you guys currently uh, working on? Do you have anything you'd like to plug, let the people out there know about? Boy, the Cobalt Press schedule is pretty big. We have a couple of things that we're not going to release. Well, they're releases at PaizoCon, and they're going to be secret releases. Ooh. Yes. Uh, last year, we had one, a convention-only special called Goblin Brewery. Um, and we don't sell it online. There's no PDF. It's just like, if you meet us at a con, you can buy this. And it's a fun goblin adventure. And come on, take a goblin adventure to to PaizoCon? Yes, I think so. Um, and and so we have something similar to that, but even more ambitious this year. Um, and that's, that's all I'll say about that. So come to PaizoCon and visit us. Uh, the other thing we've got brewing, uh, man, I don't know how much I can say. Well, I think that the next thing to talk about is probably the Southlands Bestiary has, has gone to press, and it's beautiful. Um, it's full of desert, jungle, mountain monsters, stuff that will basically tear the PC's faces off in delightfully entertaining ways. <laughs> um, it's just, I love monster books, and that one turned out really well. Um, I, I've been kind of bragging on the, the quality of the art for Advanced Races Compendium, um, but many of those artists have also turned in work for uh, the Southlands Bestiary, which ships in July. So um, that's something to watch out for. And it has a dire spinosaurus. And it has a dire spinosaurus. I know we've talked about this before, but it is like the coolest, <laughs> awesomest, most colossal, gigantic dinosaur ever. I mean, it goes down the river and it carries a whole troop of lizard folk on its back. And it, it, it 
ugh, there's nothing cooler than a dire spinosaurus. I can't wait to get one into my game. I'm I'm probably terrifying my players every time I come on a podcast and say, you know, yeah, they they rule the rivers. Just watch out. And now they're for some reason this scares them out into the desert. My players don't want to go near water anymore. <laughs> well, my players are currently uh, in the jungle. Um, ah. And I'm keeping them there until I get my hands on the dire spinosaurus. So beware as well. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually looking at the dire spinosaurus right now, and he just makes me giggle. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice piece of design you guys did. Thank you, thank you. He was he was fun. Yeah, he's really 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 big. <laughs> Steven, you're working with Wolfgang on a on a lot of the Southland stuff as well, right? Well, our Southland stuff uh, consisted of work on the Bestiary, the Lizard Folk book. Uh, uh, there's a cool little chapter on magic carpets, and uh, that was that was a blast to write because they're all variant kinds of magic carpets. And then, of course, we kind of stretched the definition of carpet to include uh, there's a couple of tapestries and uh, some very ratty rugs that you wouldn't think were magical until they do the horrible thing to you. Uh, and that was <laughs> a lot of fun. Um, but I think until I, most of the Southland stuff, I think is just about done. And then I, I don't think there's anything else for us to do for it. Yeah, no, it's like the, the hardcover Southlands book is, is off to press. The bestiary is pretty much on press. We're like just waiting for the long process of, you know, getting proofs and approving them and making sure it's all good and making sure the cover's correct. And then actually printing, binding and shipping it this summer. Mm. Yeah, for sure. If you look at the Southlands bestiary and you look at very, 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 very large, uh, high CR creatures, the chances are you can blame a horseman for that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, hey, that uh, sounds like fun. <laughs> Wolfgang, can we can we uh, talk about the thing that's due this month that I'm working on? Yeah, we can probably talk about it a little bit. We're working on a, a book that expands the Midgard setting about the Grand Duchy, which is this just amazing uh, uh, kingdom because it has uh, vast wealth and these high society fae uh, combined with dwarven halfling and human uh, folks who live in the culture. Uh, and then, of course, there's also sort of a dark fae component because they want to infiltrate this place. There are also unexplored ancient elven uh, ruins, uh, which people can go adventure in. And so there's you have huge settlements uh, and an amazingly complicated and kind of even brutal political structure. And at the same time, you have these places that are totally committed to the wilds. And the Grand Duchy is just, I think, a really fun place to adventure. You could play any of many, many races and be very at home there. Uh, we're doing, if you want to be, uh, if you want to have really tense role-play moments uh, that where there are mechanics written for them, but, you know, you can't say the wrong thing because then you're going to make an enemy. And you can't say too much because then you're going to give secrets away and you'll make an enemy that way. I mean, you're going to have to step very lightly in the open courts, uh, uh, in the courts of the Grand Duchy. And I just, I'm having a lot of fun with it. Oh, yes. and... It may be, as far as I know, Pathfinder's first mythic archetype. I'll uh, I'll tease that. Ooh, yeah, all right. You've said enough. <laughs> I'll quit now. <laughs> I know there's tons of cool right. stuff coming in that, and honestly, the Grand Duchy is the one part of, of Midgard that we've never dared tackle. So uh, it's time. It's time to, to go visit. Uh, well, that sounds great, guys. So there's a lot of stuff coming on the horizon. People should go check out this Kickstarter. They should check out Cobalt Press. Uh, where can you guys be found on the internet? Oh, coboldpress.com, please. And, and Twitter, Facebook. I really should have an Instagram account, but I don't. Uh, all, the, all the usual places. G+. 
Excellent, excellent. And we will link everything at thetomeshow.com so people will be able to get the Kickstarter and to all your social media and your main webpage that way. Absolutely. Uh, and awesome. Stephen, where can people find you? Well, we have one good page uh, uh, where we we try to do a lot of marketing and get the word out for everything that we've worked on. You can go to facebook.com slash fourhorsemanofficial. We have a Facebook page there. We're developing a website for ourselves, but it's just not dark and spooky enough yet. So we're working on that. Gentlemen, thank you very much for coming on the roundtable today. Thank you, James. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the roundtable. Dave Gibson, where can people find you? My blog webcomic, Five Minute Workday, at www.5mwd.com, which you can blame newbie DM for. Hey. <laughs> and Enrique Bertrand, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at NubiDM, or you can go to my website, NubiDM.com. Excellent. And Chris Dudley, where can people find you? Um, well, I usually hang out on my two other podcasts. That's DragonReal.com, which is about fantasy films. And uh, Rule Zero Podcast, which is about gaming. And you can Twitter me at Rule Zero Podcast. And uh, those are excellent podcasts. I highly recommend everybody listen to them. Uh, Thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, it's awesome. Chris's lovely wife, Sharon, is often on. So uh, you'll you'll have a great time, and you'll laugh a lot, too, because they're pretty funny. Wade Kemper, where can you be found? Uh, Currently, you could reach me at my email or my Gmail, which is my name, Wade Kemper at gmail.com. People, if you have an opinion or a question or a topic you'd like to hear us discuss on the roundtable, you can reach out to me on Twitter at James Intracasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Or you can leave us a comment on the Tome Show's website at thetomeshow.com. And a quick shameless plug for me, check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age. It's the fifth edition world that I'm building. It's over at worldbuilderblog.me. Okay, everybody, thanks for listening. And thanks to Dave, Wade, Chris, and Enrique. Special thanks to Jeff Greiner for letting us join the Tome Show lineup and to Sam Dillon for getting this podcast out there on the airwaves. Our theme music, which you're listening to right now, was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. And hey, if you like the show, please rate The Tome Show on iTunes and like us on Facebook. Keep on rolling and keep on listening to The Roundtable.